0: Hey everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's new podcast where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking U.S.-Cuban relations with Jay Carlisle Citizen Professor of History Lou Perez. As an academic who specializes in Cuba and the country's history, I'm sure you've been to Cuba a few times. What's Cuba like? What's it like being there?
1: Being in Cuba really depends on where you are in Cuba. If you're in Havana, you are in a major metropolitan Atlantic city with a long history, a sprawling city, a city that reflects in its very architecture, its very grid of streets and neighborhoods, the history of Cuba, from the entrance to the port, to the suburbs, to the Fifth Avenue. and So the city... Being in Havana uh, is one version of, of Cuba. Being in the city of uh, Santiago de Cuba, which is at, the, is at the opposite end of the island, is another experience. The city of Santiago is a very much Caribbean city, reflecting both in temperament and in architecture and in demographics. A city that looks toward the Caribbean, whereas Havana looks toward the Atlantic. And then being in provincial cities, everything in between, from the big cities to the small towns, it's, a, it's quite a diversity of subcultures and experiences and traditions.
0: So, what are the Cuban people like and what's the driving force behind their economy?
1: It's a very well educated population. Uh, the, um, it, is a, it is probably, on a per capita basis, one of the best educated populations in the world. It is a people that has a very powerful sense of itself, of its destiny, of its abilities. It is a culture that is enormously resilient. It is a culture that is also, as even as it's resilient, it's very adaptable. It changes to circumstances without losing its moorings, its bearings and orientation. They are a people who are enormously resourceful, enormously inventive, who provide the, probably the single largest resource of that, that country's economy.
0: Neither the Cuban people or their economy have really been accessible to U.S. citizens for decades now. So I guess we might want to rewind a little bit and talk about the history between the two countries. And I know this is a complex issue, but cliff note style, can you explain some of the history between U.S. and Cuba?
1: The great fork in the road, the great divergence between Cuba and the United States happens around 1960-61. And from that point on, the United States has embarked, had embarked on a systematic effort at regime change in Cuba. So that, for example, the embargo that was placed on Cuba in 6061, and which continues to this very day, had as its principal objective to inflict hardship on the Cuban people in the hope that by inflicting hardship on the Cuban people, the Cuban people would rise up and overthrow the Cuban government. And that was that was the purpose of the hardship. And then in the same period, it, it, this is a country with which we have not reconciled to establish any kind of normal relations with until a year and a half ago in 2014.
0: And I'm sure the two countries and their citizens kind of view this history and this tension in two different ways. Kind of what's the Cuban perspective of this history?
1: Both countries have very different memories of the other. We're looking at two parallel histories and they tend to be often mirror images of each other. The Cuban narrative is a country that is Struggled long and hard for self-determination and national sovereignty. And the United States has obstructed self-determination and national sovereignty at every turn. So from the very creation of the Republic in 1902 until the triumph of the Cuban Revolution, the United States has been involved in Cuba, uh, military interventions, political intermeddling, seizing control of the main sectors of the Cuban economy, um, seizing territory that becomes the Guantanamo Naval Station during an occupation, And the the, the Cuban narrative is one in which they struggle against Spanish colonialism for independence, and then in the first half of the 20th century, they struggle against American imperialism for independence. And the moment of redemption, and finally the the triumph of the Cuban spirit, of the Cuban quest for self-determination and national sovereignty occurs in 1959 with the triumph of the Cuban Revolution. And then we enter a whole new phase of Cuban-U.S. relations.
0: And then, what about the American point of view? I mean, what did we really have against Cuba?
1: There's a punitive facet to U.S. policy toward Cuba. If you if if you were to analyze the place of Cuba in the in the great scheme of things of American strategic thinking, going back to the 19th century, Cuba was always perceived, starting from Monroe and Adams and Jefferson, Cuba was perceived to be, uh, if not integral to the territory of the United States, integral to the well-being of the United States. So that all through the 19th century, Cuba was perceived to be, it's Cuba's destiny was perceived to be something of, of being incorporated with, into, or subject to American national interests. And starting in the 20, early 20th century, Cuba becomes an American client state. And this is a client state, then that breaks with the United States in 1959, 1960, 61. And then, and then nationalizes American property and then commits the unforgivable, quote-unquote, unforgivable sin of aligning itself with the Soviet Union at the time of the Cold War, allowing the Soviets to install missiles on the island, allowing the Soviets to establish a submarine base on the island, allowing the Soviets to develop an intelligence facility, intelligence-gathering facility in the western end of the island. And the Cubans were not to be forgiven were not to be forgiven for these transgressions that occur in the 60s, 70s, and 80s.
0: So, with all that background in mind and the differences in point of view during that time period, are you kind of surprised that the U.S. and Cuba are beginning to restore normal relations?
1: Uh, yes and no. I think it's it, it's a good it's a good move. I think it's a the, the renewal of uh, of relations is good. Both governments are talking to each other instead. at each other. What is problematical about this normalization is that while we are looking at a new phase of Cuba-U.S. relations, we're also taking a look at a new strategy that has now been launched by the United States for regime change. The United States pursues normalization of relations with Cuba with the explicit intention of changing Cuba to introduce a market economy, to promote a civil society. In other words, the, the Americans have an agenda. And that agenda is to follow by different means the strategy of, if not a change of regime, then a change in the regime.
0: So given that policy and all the background between the two countries, are the Cuban people cautious about what's going on right now?
1: Um, The Cuban people have been overwhelmingly, uh, there's an overwhelming unanimity of opinion in, in Cuba about separating the policies and the actions of the American government and its relations with the American people. I don't know of a single instance in the last 20, 30, 40 years where Americans traveling in Cuba experience what we can call an anti-American moment. Cubans and Americans um, get along I mean, on a people-to-people basis, uh, but Cubans have a fairly good assessment of the relations between government to government. And so what we're looking at in this situation is whether where the Cubans are welcoming Americans. There is a vast infusion of, of new of new funds. And I think this is all to the good and is going to have a salutary effect. And uh, the long-term consequence of this really does remain to be seen.
0: So what does the normalization of the relations between these two countries really mean for the Cuban people?
1: Right now, for the Cuban people, anybody who is in the tourist sector is probably doing well because the uptick in American travel to Cuba in the last 18 months has been quite phenomenal. The Obama administration has allowed, expanded the, the the degree to which Americans could travel to the island. They have expanded Cuban American visits. They have allowed greater sums of money to be sent in remittances. All this by to infuse foreign exchange into the island to promote a um, economic development. And again, this is part of the idea that what the what the U.S. government is trying to do is to trying to create a free market to try to promote entrepreneurial enterprises, to create a situation in which, as the U.S. government says, to separate the Cuban people from dependency on a Cuban state, in the hope that once this, this, this entity takes form, then the Cubans themselves will become agents of and promoters of reform.
0: And then what does it mean for the American citizens? I mean, does it mean more than just, I can go to Cuba now?
1: It does mean you can visit Cuba now. It does mean that Cuban ballplayers can make it play in the major leagues. It does mean that you could now increasingly drink Cuban rum and Cuban cigars. It does mean that, that the culture of Cuba, the music of Cuba, the poetry of Cuba, the, the fiction, the drama, the film, we've made available to the Americans. It does mean that Cuban scientific breakthroughs and vaccinations and medical technology will become available to the United States and to the world at large. It does mean that paradigms of, of, of social justice and paradigms of social services that are used in Cuba might have some impact in, in the United States. So it's a two way street. I think uh, both, both peoples have much to learn from each other.
0: So there's definitely a lot of baggage that comes along with this normalization of relations between US and Cuba. But kind of where do you think this is going? What's going to happen in the next decade or two?
1: <laughs> where is it going? Where is it going? normalization is going to take a long time. You do not undo 55, 60 years of a hostile confrontation in mere months. The Americans are eager to get on with history. The Cubans know the history all too well, and they are moving very slow with all due deliberate speed. They are the, the degree to which Cuba opens up, the degree to which, and by opening up, I mean allows increasingly foreign investment, increase of private employment, is a function to, of, of the degree to which Cubans feel secure that the U.S. government is not actually st- still pursuing regime change. And so when one looks at what is unfolding, you have a sense that the Cubans are going to move far more slowly than the Americans want them to move that the Cubans have a whole list of grievances the way the Americans have a long list of grievances, and these grievances have to be negotiated out. So we start off with grievance number one, the embargo. The Cubans want the embargo lifted. Grievance number two, claims. Both countries have a long list of claims. Uh, The Americans want compensation for the property nationalized in the 60s. The Cubans want uh, compensation for the damages inflicted by the U.S. in covert operations and lost trade. And uh, three, Guantanamo Naval Station. The Cubans want the the territory back. And then there's a whole host of smaller issues. But these are the big issues that have to be resolved before we move toward what we can call normal relations. In In fact, we have no model for what is normal relations between Cuba and the United States. We don't know what we're talking about. Because if you look at relations before 1959, certainly they're not going to go back to that. And we don't know really what normal relations will look like in the years to come.
0: Thanks for listening today, and don't forget to check back at unc.edu next Wednesday for a new episode of Well Said.